If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 1. That's where we're going to be working this morning. If, if you are new with us and, and kind of trying to get a feel for, for how things work around here, we're just continuing this morning in our series that we started working through the Gospel of John, started back on Easter Sunday, uh, and that is our ordinary methodology here. Uh, we will be working our way through through books of the Bible from, from start to finish, just going continuously through, the, through those books. And, and that's really in keeping with our understanding of, of what we call the ordinary means of grace. And, and, I, and I know that's a term or that's a phrase that might be a little new or perhaps foreign, uh, at least somewhat unfamiliar, but it's, it's, it's one we need to become familiar with because it, it really encapsulates the heart of and the desire of this body as a local church. Now, now we, we just prayed for all of the churches, right? All of the, all of the unique local congregations in Lexington. Eric prayed for that, and, and we believe that. We believe that there is one sort of big C church that exists. One, uh, if, you, if you notice in our confessions, we talk about one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, people translate that Catholic now and say universal. What we would say is there's just one. There's, there's one church, one true church of Jesus Christ. And, but as a local branch of the church, as, as sort of one, one element of the church in, in, its, in its broader picture, we want to be a means of grace church. And what that means is we're going to focus on the word, uh, we're going to focus on prayer, and we're going to focus on uh, the sacraments. And so you're going to see those things. Like you're going to continually see those things practiced and employed here because we truly believe that those, that those are the things that Jesus wants us to focus on. And again, this isn't the PCA's church. This isn't Adam Williams' church. This isn't Gregory's church. It's not any individual's church other than our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we want to do what he tells us to do. We're going to be Bible people. Now, one of my favorite ways of saying that means we're going to be creatures of the Word. Uh, we're going to be a people who pray. Like We're going to live that out. We're going to live that out in this context. We're going to live that out in the broader context of life. We're going we're gonna to pray, as one person said to me, uh, it was a child uh, just a couple of weeks ago, that we pray so much in our worship service. I didn't really know how to take that at the time, but if, I thought, I think it's a compliment that if we're praying so much that we're at least communicating to this child who couldn't have been more than four or five that, that we're a praying people. Like, we're dependent on God for everything that we do here. And then we also focus on the sacraments. We focus on those Christ-instituted sacraments of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You will see those things up here. Now, I want to confess to you, right now we have the baptismal bowl, and, and since we're a church plant, we don't have the plate in the pitcher yet. But eventually, those things will be sitting there too. Okay, but evidently, church distributors think very highly of that equipment. So we have to figure out the best way to get those things in our budget. But there's going to be a plate and a picture there representing the, the bread and the blood that we will partake in. In fact, we will be partaking next week as a people. We do that once a month here. We partake in the Lord's Supper or what we call communion as the body. We are a means of grace church. And so what we want to do now is we want to go to the Word we do this every week, not because I need something to work on, not because I want you to hear my voice. I honestly promise you that's not what it is. It's because we believe that God has given us our word, that it might be proclaimed, that it might be heard, that it might be spoken, that it might be shared, that it might be distributed, that it might be 
embraced. So would you stand with me now? If you are able, stand with me and let's tune our hearts to the word of our God. This is John 1, starting in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you're not a silent, distant God, that you didn't just create and then leave, but that you created and you spoke and you have shown yourself in the things that you have created and the words that you have spoken to us. And so God, I would ask you to do that again today. I pray that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that you would shout to us if that's what we need. I pray that you would open our blind eyes that we might see you more clearly, that you would remove from us all of the distractions of our lives. Just melt those things away that we might worship you today with our whole hearts, that we might hear from you. I pray that my weaknesses, that my, that my stammering tongue and my poor illustrations wouldn't do anything to prevent you from being heard. Lord, work in spite of me, in spite of your servant here. And I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated, please. All right, one of my least favorite things in the early morning rides to drop off our kids at school is, is the guy who follows too closely. Um, and I know I'm not unique in that. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person that that bothers. Um, you probably know that guy too. Um, it just gets on my nerves. And truthfully, I think I'm justified in that, right? I, I, it, it drives me nuts. You know, when I can see the hood, when I cannot see the hood of your car, but I can tell what color eyes you have, you are too, you're too close. I mean, I think that's, that's a, a non, I, I think that goes without saying, right? You have crossed over into an area that you don't need to be in. There's this one lady who does this to us all the time. She is my, I, uh, I, my daughter Kate and I joke, she's my morning nemesis, all right? She just shows up three times a week, comes screaming up behind us. We just call her the silver accord. Um, comes screaming up behind us, swerves over just enough to let us know that she's not happy with the speed that we're traveling. Um, I, I see her coming in the rearview mirror, and my heart starts beating faster. Like, I just, I know what's coming for me. She even honked at me one day. Yeah. <laughs> at, at me, right? I mean, honked at me early in the morning. It's like not even 8 o'clock, and you're already honking at people. How is your day going to go after that? Um, I, but I just see her coming, and it just gets me all all upset before she even gets there. And then, and then she eventually passes me, right, and does the same exact 
thing to the poor guy who's just trying to sing along to the greatest showman with his daughter in the car. That might just be me. Anyway, um, but I know I'm not the only one. Like, I know I'm not the only one that this bothers. Um, I know this happens to you too. Maybe it's the silver accord. Listen, if it happens, let me just say this. If it never happens to you, it's probably because you're the one doing it, okay? Um, so stop it. On behalf of everybody that you're doing that to, please stop it. Uh, the last time this happened, uh, just this last week, I, I had this passage in mind, okay? Um, and, and as she passed me and almost immediately had to slam on her brakes, you know, it was one of those where you see the lights and you see the car go a direction it's not supposed to, and she passed me and, you know, I don't know that she did anything mean. I can't see it anyway. Uh, But she passed me, and she had to slam on the brakes so she wouldn't run into this car. And all I could think was, all that came into my mind was the truth that we are all following someone. Like, you can try as hard as you want, but at the end of the day, you're going to be behind someone. Everyone is following something. Whether we like it or not, regardless of how independent, regardless of how autonomous that we might like to think that we are, it is an unavoidable reality that, that when it is all said and done, we are all following something. And usually, okay, usually that something is a someone. Our passage today picks up on, the, on what is the third of four consecutive days that John lays out for us here in the first chapter uh, of, his, of his gospel. It's the Third day. We'll see the fourth day next week, by the way. And what we find in verse 35 is that, is that John the Baptist is standing there uh, with, with what it says is two of his disciples. Now, that's a, that's a, de- a word we need to define, okay? He, he's, he defines it for us there a little bit, but he's, a disciple is simply a follower. That, that's the most sort of coarse, just generic definition. A, a disciple is a follower, um, that's simplistic, and it doesn't, it doesn't really grasp the full weight of what the Bible would say to us about what a disciple is. What we see in the Bible is that, is that more than walking behind someone or, or driving behind someone, more than just following in that generic sense, to be a disciple of someone is, is to believe their doctrine, so to believe what they're saying, to think that what they're saying is worth hearing. It's, it's to absorb their spirit, so in some way to sort of emulate who they are, and it's to imitate their example. And you know this from your life, okay? The people you follow, you, you believe that what they're saying is truthful. The, the people who, who you follow, you do sort of absorb and, and take in what they're putting out beyond just their words, but their whole essence of living. And, and you also see that you, or you will find yourself emulating their behavior, that's what a disciple does. And so what is, as we consider this passage today, we're considering what it means to be called a disciple. We're considering what it means that these men followed John the Baptist as his disciples and that, and, and that they are ultimately going to follow Jesus as his disciples. And we want to consider what that means for us. And so what I want to lay before you today Uh, What I want us to leave here holding on to is that the reason that Jesus calls anyone, the reason that Jesus would call any one of his people, any one of his disciples to follow him is because he wants his people to go the right direction. He wants his people to go the right direction. That's the first thing that we see about a disciple. All right, there's gonna be three things. I'm gonna break it down for us here, but it's the first is that they'd follow. And And I realize that's really redundant to say that a disciple follows, since I just told you that uh, the definition for a disciple is a follower. But uh, again, we're going to look at 
We're going to look at how this plays out in real time. So look back real quickly at verse 35 with me. 35 through 39 is what it says. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. All right. These two men have, have been disciples of, of John the Baptist. We know that. In fact, that's really all that we know about them at this point, is that they are disciples of John the Baptist. That's the only way that we know them. I know that most of us know more about them because we grew up reading these stories. But if you had never read this before, all that you know about these two men is that they are disciples of John the Baptist. One of the things that stuck out to me in this short passage is just how rooted it is in, in sort of the mundane realities of life. Just the most ordinary day that we can imagine. John's not there with a big crowd. I mean, that's how we expect to see John the Baptist. He's down by the river, and there's a whole crew there waiting in line, I'm sure decently and orderly because they were Presbyterians, and they're, they're going to get baptized, right, in, beside the water probably with a cup or something, right? I mean, this is obviously how they would have done it back then, um, maybe with pouring. Um, I, honestly, I have no idea how they did it there, and anybody who thinks they know exactly is probably wrong. But anyway, um, they, they're, they're there, and they're, but on this day, it's just him, just him and two of his guys. Just standing there. This is just the most, this is just like you would be at work probably tomorrow morning, just standing there with a couple of people. He's not there. He's not baptizing a bunch of people. According to what we see here, he's just standing there with his couple, well, a couple of his boys. Now, maybe they're talking. Maybe they're trying to plan out what they're going to do the rest of the day. We don't know. This is just the most routine sounding encounter that we can imagine. We even see that as Jesus enters the frame. Like, did you catch that? Remember the day before, there was, there was like a drama to this. We saw that last week. There was a drama coming as Jesus was coming toward them. And we said that, that coming toward is not, is not just generic. He, he was coming intentionally towards John the Baptist. He was coming to him. There was this big declaration. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? There was like a, there's a drama to that day. He made this big announcement and everything. And yet, and yet if you look back... We were never really given a glimpse of what happened next. There was all of this buildup, and yet we never even heard Jesus speak about that whole day. But now here on this day, on this day, Jesus isn't coming toward them. Did you catch that? He's not. He he saw him passing by or walking by. He's just passing by them. Again, this sort of shows us the mundane realities in which Jesus existed. And so here's what my mind does. My mind immediately goes to where is he going? If he's passing by, where's Jesus going? Surely he's going to do something big and and, and exciting. or, or, And then if I wonder about that, I go, where's he coming from? He's just walking by just like we do all the time. You see, we have to remember that, that when he became flesh and dwelt among us, he actually did dwell among us. Like he lived more days than what we have recorded in here. This is a snapshot. Half of John's gospel is a week of Jesus' life. So we've got a whole 32 and three quarter-ish years to make up for that we don't know. But John does give us a picture of that here. 
There's a picture. Where was Jesus going from? Was he going to get groceries? I don't know. Was he, was he going to, to meet another guy and these two fellows started following? We don't know. What we do know is that he lived a normal day just like we do. Just like we do. He lived ordinary days. He endured the mundane and even the monotonous parts of life. One of the problems for some of us is we can only imagine Jesus healing a blind man. We can imagine him feeding multitudes. We can imagine him raising someone from the dead, but we cannot imagine him walking to the market to buy a loaf of bread. You see, all those things are very, very important because they show us the divinity of Jesus. But if we can't imagine him living in the world in which we find ourselves, we will never understand the humanity of Jesus too. And that was just as important. He had to be both God and man. And so John looked at Jesus as he walked by. And again, it sounds like he kind of pointed him out. Behold, the Lamb of God. There he goes. His two disciples heard him say this and were told that they followed Jesus. That's the first thing we need to notice about a disciple. And it's very simple. It's that they, disciples follow someone. I have to be careful here not to hyper-spiritualize this too, because our minds tend to do that. We think they immediately jumped into fully orb discipleship, right? They started dressing like him, started, started tracking around with him, listening to him, writing down every word he was saying. By the way, there's no proof that they ever did that. Like none. They constantly get it wrong. What this literally means is that they followed him. They started walking around behind them. They had never read any of this. If we, if we had never read any of this before, if we had no idea where John is going, all we know is that these guys are sort of borderline stalking Jesus at this moment. And they're just kind of tracking behind him. In fact, when Jesus turns around, what does he say to him? What are you looking for? One of my favorite movies as a kid was Rocky IV. I don't know if I have too much pride or not enough in the fact that that's true, but... That's the one where he fights the giant Russian, right? Middle of the Cold War. If you grew up in the 80s at all, that was a required movie. You had to watch it. It was, uh, he fights uh, Ivan Drago was the guy's name, right? Or I guess to go to some Siberian looking part of Russia out there to train. He's like, he's like out there running through the snow. He's helping peasants with their overturned carts. Of course, Rocky's helping peasant Russians with overturned carts. Um, and he's like lifting big rocks and doing sit-ups from the rafters of the barn. All the while, the Russian's like in this super high-tech facility getting all roided out because he's about to destroy Rocky, right? Um, everywhere he goes, there's these two guys in this sort of, uh, I think it was like an old Mercedes following him around. Every time he went running, they're just traveling behind him. That's, that's kind of the picture we have here. Wherever he goes, they're just following him, keeping an eye on him. That's these two disciples at this point. They're still disciples of John the Baptist. They're still going to find out who this guy is. They're going to confirm where he's going, who he is. That's the idea. They just followed him to see what they could find out about him. Maybe they wanted to verify and, and maybe authenticate what John has just said about this man. But we should at this point notice, if you look in verse 37, there's not even an invitation from Jesus to come after him. He hasn't said, hey, come and follow me. He's just walking. And so when we get to 38, if you get to verse 38, you can sort of see Jesus in your mind. You almost visualize him noticing these two guys following him. And he said to them, the first words, interestingly, that we have recorded of Jesus in the Gospel of John, he said to them, what are you seeking? He didn't ask who. He asked, what are you seeking? Before Jesus will even begin to entertain the thought of some sort of formal discipleship, he wants to hear an expression of the desire of these men's hearts. We know that ultimately they spend the rest of the day with Jesus, and, and we see that, that what started as just an ordinary day ended up being a monumental 
moment in their lives. We're told that they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. If you look down at the bottom of your page, your Bible probably has a note that says that the 10th hour is around 4 p.m. Um, I appreciate the effort there, but I think they're wrong. All right? And I don't do that a whole lot like I'm not that guy. He's like, eh, the Greek, what's... No, I'm not, I don't do that a whole lot. Here, here's what probably is, is happening there, is they're using the old time of keeping method, where, where the Romans had started in, uh, instituted their own time. It's the same calendar dating that we use today. They're, they're using that. John uses that later in his gospel uh, explicitly. And so what this means is they ran into Jesus about 10 a.m. And they spent the rest of the day with him. They spent the rest of the day with him. But the important thing here is not so much the interpretation, but the detail. John is going to effort here to root this in real space and real time. He wants us to know these things aren't just happening in abstraction. These are not just stories, but these are true stories that are being told. These two men saw the real Jesus. They saw the true Lamb of God, and they followed him. And since most of us probably know how this all ends, uh, we need to remember that today, on this day, we're trying to figure out how it all began. You know, a lot of times if we've been in the church for too much, we jump to the end of the story and we miss the steps that got them there. This is how it began. It had to begin with following someone. That's what disciples do. Disciples follow someone. The next thing that we see is that disciples find others. Look back at verse 40 and 41 with me. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. It is amazing how quickly a follower can become a finder. That's what we see happening here. We see that Andrew, he's called Simon Peter's brother because even John knows how big of a deal Simon Peter becomes later on, right? He went out and found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Listen listen to me. This happened that day. That day. They followed Jesus that day and by the end of the day, they're finding more people to follow Jesus. They didn't wait a week. They didn't take a bunch of classes. They did not, they did not say, hey, all right, what's the proper, proper process in, in inviting someone to come follow? They didn't go through a discipleship course or anything like that. There was no formal written work in this. They just met the Messiah, and they went and found other people and brought them to him. Realizing what they had found, they go and find others. They go and find others, and they tell them of this incredible thing that has happened. In fact, they can't wait to tell someone. They can't wait. They have found the Messiah. John defines that word for us there. You see that? He says that uh, he found the Messiah, which means Christ, and that means anointed one. Okay, The Messiah is the anointed one of God. And historically, we see that title. That's not Jesus' last name. All right, That's his title. When it's Christ, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one of God. When we see that title applied historically, we see it applied to, to three offices in the Bible. The offices of the prophet, the office of the priest, and the office of the king. I'll give you an example just in case you don't believe me. In 1 Samuel 16, 6, the word that Samuel uses, Samuel goes out to find the king who's going to replace Saul because Saul was a bad king, right? You're with me at this point, I think. He goes to find uh, ultimately David, and he says, I am looking for the Lord's anointed. If you look at that in the original language, he says, I am looking for the Lord's Messiah. 
Okay, that's what it says in that, in that Hebrew language. He's looking for the Messiah. And so what that means is that when David gets anointed, he serves for us as a as sort of a type of Christ, as a type of Jesus, a type of Messiah there in 1 Samuel. In Psalm 105, 15, it says, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. So see, they're the anointed ones, all right? The prophets are a sort of shadow or type of Messiah. Again, same word used there. And just so you know, I'm being consistent. We've seen the king. I've shown you the king. I've shown you the prophet as the types of Messiah. In Leviticus 4, 4, the priest who sacrifices the sin offering is called the anointed priest. Literally, Messiah priest. That is his name. The Messiah is pointed to throughout the ministries of the prophet, the priest, and the king. And that's the title that this Jew, Andrew, who would have been familiar with the scriptures, is the title that he gives to Jesus in that moment. We have found the Messiah and he can't wait to tell someone. He can't wait to tell someone. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that what we do when we come across something amazing? I mean, it's what I do. Isn't it your first instinct when you come across something beautiful or powerful or, or, or something that you enjoy to go and tell someone else about it? We do it all the time. We do it with big things and we do it with little things. Like I, We do it when we get a pair of shoes that we really like. My wife will send me a picture of a pair of shoes in a heartbeat if she likes them enough. If not, then I wonder why she bought them. If I haven't seen a picture of the shoes before I get home, I wonder why she got them, honestly. It makes me think she just got them for fun. Anyway, um, we do it with like the movies we like. Hey, have you seen that movie? Man, you got to see this movie. You got to spend $37 and go see this movie right now. Uh, we do it with our favorite drink at Starbucks, right? We do this with, with all types of things. We do it with inconsequential things. We do it with new jobs. We do it with when we meet that person who just might be the one, right? I mean, that. We do that. We tell people these things. Some people do it with like a really good meal. And I want to be honest, in, in our current uh, age, it's a little depressing to me that the amount of attention a meal gets. Like you take a picture of it and you post it onto your profile and now I'm supposed to uh, appreciate that you've eaten this meal. I, like I, I really don't know how to respond to those, to be honest with you. I mean, I like you. I don't care what you eat for dinner, um, ever. As long as it's not like poisonous and we don't have to go to the hospital for you. Listen, we, we're about to see, and, and, and there's some, probably somebody in here who can tell you how many days away we are from seeing this. But some of the most ferocious evangelists you will ever find are Carolina and Clemson fans. You wait until kickoff and you'll find out how excited people are about certain things. We are all heralds of the things that we care about because we're communal people. We were designed that way. We were designed that way by nature. We want to bring other people into the spheres of life that we enjoy. We want our friends. We want our family. We want our neighbors to know of the joy of the good things that we have. John said, John said, behold the Lamb of God, right? He made it known. You see, very quickly, followers become finders. It's just a natural response. And so what we see here is that Andrew goes and finds his brother Simon. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Andrew doesn't go to a stranger. He doesn't just run out onto the street and find somebody who he doesn't know and will never have any other contact with. He goes to his brother. 
He goes to someone who knows him. He goes to someone who knows him deeply. I think that might be even more difficult than just going to the stranger on the street. It might be more difficult because it's those who are closest to us who know all our baggage. Like they know all of our deficiencies. They know the dark corners of our lives that we try to keep hidden. Andrew would have already known. Think about this. Andrew would have already known the tendency of his brother to speak before he really thinks. I mean, we're going to see that from Peter. He just has a tendency to speak without really regard for what's happening around him. Andrew would have known that. That's not a gift that Peter developed when he started hanging around Jesus. That was probably a lifelong gift. He would have known his tendency to use words that you're not supposed to use, and we'll see that too from Peter. Yeah, see, we're going to see Simon, who becomes Peter, revealed more and more for the broken and sinful person that he is. And Andrew would have already known that. And Simon would have known all of that stuff about Andrew, too. He would have been fully aware of all the parts of Andrew that might make us actually pull away from him. And Andrew would have been fully aware that Simon knew all that stuff about him. Even with all of that, we see that just as disciples follow, just as they go and find, they also reform. They follow someone, they find someone, and disciples reform. That means they change. Look back at verse 42. He brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, so not only did did Andrew tell his brother about this Messiah, not only did he share with him the good news of this one who they had been waiting for, hoping for, and praying for. What we see in verse 42 is that he actually followed through and brought him, brought him to Jesus Listen, that's not a little thing. I know that's just a few words on the page and it seems natural, but that is not a little thing. I want you to hear me say that. I know it. I know that's not an easy thing because you probably know what I'm about to press on you to start doing. It's not an an easy thing to do. But this picture we see of Andrew gives us hope that for the fact that while it's just While it's not a little thing, it's also not a complicated thing. Bringing someone to Jesus is not as complicated as we would like to make it. He brought him, he brought Simon, Simon Peter, he brought him to Jesus. And almost immediately, almost immediately, we're given a glimpse of what discipleship looks like. I mean, just right out of the gate, Jesus takes a look at Simon. Uh, It it means he beheld him. He saw him there. He fixed his eyes on him. And instead of asking him what he does for a living, instead of asking him where he lives, instead of asking him if he was married or how many kids he has, Jesus looks at Simon and he says, you are Simon, the son of John. And those words, he's saying, I know who you are. I already know you. And he says, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. He knows who Simon is now, and he knows who Simon is going to become. You see, all disciples reform. All disciples change. This is not just a prediction of what might happen. It's not just wishful thinking for what this man could one day become. Jesus is making a declaration. He's making a promise These few words that he speaks are, as as one commentator says, an indication of what God's grace would accomplish in the heart and life of his disciple. 
Within this introduction alone, Jesus is making it known that Simon will never be the same. Jesus is about to show him a new path. He's about to show him a right path. Again, again, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him because he wants them to go in the, in the right direction. And that's what he's inviting you into. It's the same thing he invites his people into today. He's inviting you into what God calls the ancient paths. One of my favorite passages in Jeremiah, who had just a brutal ministry. In Jeremiah 6, 16, it says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. And walk in it and find rest for your souls. You see, the ancient paths are the good way for ancient, for wearied travelers. You're going to be tempted this week to veer off the course. And you know that. I mean, as you sit here today, you already know that. You're going to be tempted to veer off of the path that Jesus has laid out for you. I'm not telling you anything here today that you don't already know. In fact, you'll be tempted before you even get home today to veer off the course. You're going to find temptations in your life. And listen, you already know some of them. As we're sitting here right now, you know some of the temptations that are going to come after you, that are going to war against you. You know those. You know your temptation to slide over into old habits. You know your, some of the old fears that crop up in you, some of the patterns of yourself that, like your heart and your mind are going to war against you. But you should take comfort today because Christ is at work. You know, the Messiah is at work. The anointed one has come to do work on you. And he says this, this is what Paul says. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Right? That he's going to bring it to completion, not you. I know my own heart. If it was dependent on me, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. Now Jesus says, I'm going to bring it to completion. I'm going to finish this work for you. You are Simon. You will be Peter. That's different. That's different. In fact, we need to take rest in the fact that he will lead us, that he will not forsake us, and that he will reform us. That's what we call sanctification. Becoming less and less like ourselves and more and more like Christ. Like, live as his disciple today. Live as his disciple tomorrow. Plan to do that. Like, make plans today to live as his disciple tomorrow. Follow him. Seek after him. Fix your eyes on him. Isn't this the language of of the scriptures? Fix your eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, right? Open his word to you this week. Like, prioritize that. Make it a tangible part of your day. Stand on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and draw near to your Savior. Follow him. Like, maybe you need to dust off your Bible and hear him speak. Go and find others. Like, invite them into this journey of faith. I want you to imagine, like, you stand to lose nothing in that. To invite someone to Jesus, you stand to lose nothing, and they stand to gain everything. When you're asked tomorrow what you did this weekend, and you will be, can we just confess that? At some point tomorrow, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Don't say nothing. Like, don't be that guy. I'm that guy way too often. What'd you do this weekend? Nothing. Tell them that you gathered with your church 
with the people of God and tell them that we have more room for them. That's not that difficult. See, we complicate the heck out of it, don't we? We just love to make it so complicated because then, we're, then we don't have to do anything. This is way too complex for me. I'm simple-minded. I can't get into that. Literally just invite them. And then if you want to be more like Andrew, go and pick them up and bring them with you. Don't kidnap them. Just go make plans, you know, to pick them up. Find others. Bring them to Jesus. It's not that hard. And here's the last one. Prepare to change. Like prepare to be reformed. To prepare to be made more and more like Christ. Because that's what it means to be called a disciple. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive my my ability to make everything seem so difficult that I end up doing nothing. I pray that you would forgive my willingness to cave to fear. Lord, I pray that you would work on our hearts. Help us to be followers of Jesus. God, work in us by your Spirit to make us finders too. Sometimes it's just an invitation. And God, prepare our hearts to change. Soften us. Smooth over those edges that we continue to hold on to. Make us look more and more like your Son. It's in his name we pray.